Remember when we decided it would be a good idea to do a small series of episodes on nostalgia? And remember how we began by describing the findings of the first doctor to describe the condition and provide a treatment. And remember how we learned all about the Swiss Army and why some of the soldiers really couldn't handle being out on their own away from Switzerland? Those were good times, weren't they? Of course, if you don't remember that episode, feel free to go back and give it a listen. Or you could just take our word for it as to how amazing and truly enlightening it was. We're happy to remember it properly for you. And you will no doubt recall we had a brilliant little bit where we discussed how nostalgia is mainly a problem of the imagination. In that discussion, we mentioned the case of a young lady who suffered a terrible fall and found herself laid up in bed for many months as she tried to heal and recover. You'll remember we said at the time that her chief problem was that she imagined she might never be able to recover and leave the confinement of her sickbed and so never get back home to Switzerland which she felt it was very important for her to do. Over time, this began to prey on her mind, and her imagination running away with her, her condition rapidly worsened instead of improving. The terrible melancholy over the imagined prospect of never seeing home again developed into an equally terrible depression, and, as we said in the episode at the time, since the mind runs the body, it wasn't long before her ability to care for and about herself deteriorated and her health worsened. Once she was taken back home, however, her mood improved and she swiftly recovered from both her nostalgia and her original injuries. So you see, nostalgia really is a problem of the imagination. For instance, if you recall us telling you that story in the previous episode, you have, sadly, an overly active imagination and an equally faulty memory. We never mentioned it. To be sure, it is one of the case studies of Dr. Hofer's original paper. We just didn't tell you about it at the time. How easy was it for you to imagine we had, though? Don't feel bad. We didn't do it to trick you. We just did it to illustrate how easy it is to imagine something happened one way, when in reality, it was completely different. Nostalgia is a problem of the imagination for two reasons. First, you can imagine things any way that pleases your mind. And second, your brain has a really hard time distinguishing between a thing you imagined or remember and a thing you actually experienced. So come along for a look back at the best episode we've ever made, as far as we can recall and learn why that probably isn't true. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. You'll have had the conversation at some point in your life. Gathered around the dinner table, you will be trying to enjoy a pleasant dinner when suddenly you're under attack. Usually the opening salvo of the attack begins with the words, Back in my day... Or something similar. Everything was always better back in my day. All schools were located uphill from every kid's house in the mornings and downhill from the house in the afternoons. 
There was no such thing as summer vacation because it was always winter with 20 feet of snow on the ground, even in Texas. In July. Vegetables tasted better, bread was cheap as free, candy came 12 to the dime, and calories, cholesterol, salt, and sugar were all homemade and came mixed together in a jar so you could spread it around as you liked with no ill effects whatsoever. Kids these days just don't understand. What were they running around unattended and doing just as they please without benefit of discipline? They respected their elders back in the day and were always polite and well-behaved. They dressed better, too. Not at all like a pack of ragamuffins turned loose on the streets with no parental supervision in sight. And let's not get started on that whole seen-but-not-heard thing. In TV... Oh, you wouldn't believe how much better TV was back then. TV was so good it was radio. Shows were new and interesting and not just clones of each other. And they spoke like real people and had wholesome morals and the humor was very respectful and made sense. And no one ever got upset with anyone else over issues. Men were real men. Women were real women. And I don't even know what that means, but it was tons better than watching the nonsense they irresponsibly put on TV now, which has no redeeming values whatsoever and is full of advertising, which hadn't been invented yet when I was a kid. Music was better, too. No one shouted. Everyone could sing and carry a tune and play a guitar and smile all at the same time. And they didn't have to look like they were going to a Halloween party to do it, either. We had things called melodies and tunes and rhythm, and you could understand all the words, and they were fun to dance to down at the sock hop. Not like this gloomy, gloomy, shouty, screamy stuff that makes your ears bleed when you hear it and is all about sex and drugs. We didn't even have drugs when I was growing up, and you had to be at least 21 and married before they'd issue you a sex license. Our cars were better, and books had actual plots you could understand. Sports were sportier, and only played by people who genuinely loved the game and didn't really need all these fancy new rules and all that money. And our wars? Our wars were better, too. And handkerchiefs? Well, you get the idea. And now an experiment. Granted, you have to be of a certain age to carry this out successfully, but give it a shot. Think of a television show you used to watch about 30 years ago. It has to have been one you really enjoyed and were really into at the time. Network TV, if you can. Probably you had the lunchbox for it if you were of the appropriate age, and you and all your friends will have talked about it a lot and maybe even play-acted it a bit. Have you got one picked out in your mind? Good. Now, go watch the first episode of it again, and try to remember why it was you liked it so much. For me, most TV from the relevant period is pretty terrible now. The A-Team, Knight Rider, Dukes of Hazard, Airwolf, and other action-y shows with their ridiculously contrived plots always conveniently escape difficulties and terrible writing arranged in such a way as to make sure all the catchphrases were used don't come off nearly as well now as they did back then. And you don't dare binge-watch any of it because of the constantly reused footage of helicopters flying upside down, cars jumping through the air but never quite fully landing again, and guys in jeeps crawling away from the flaming wreckage miraculously unharmed. Not to mention the paper-thin plots and bare-bones acting that alternately ate up the scenery or faded so far into the background that it barely even existed at all. Frankly, it's all pretty terrible by any reasonable standard, and I'm willing to bet the shows you liked back then 
fare about the same in the face of your current sensibilities. But we did like them at the time. A whole lot. And recast, relaunched, reimagined feature-length versions and reunions of the various shows notwithstanding, we still harbor a fondness for them even today, even while recognizing that things are not as we remember them, which is where we start asking questions. Why do we think back kindly on them, even on that, by the standards of their own day, they were still pretty terrible? What is wrong with our brains that makes that happen? Well, as has been pointed out before, our brains, yours and mine, are clever liars. Especially when it comes to emotions, and especially when compared to the more analytical side of our natures. See, your brain can remember that 2 plus 2 equals 4 just fine. And it can remember how to do math, how to bake a cake, how to tie your shoe, what your phone number is, what the names of the planets are, and a couple hundred thousand other loose facts and figures without much problem at all, really. But that's just background noise to the real business of your brain, which is keeping you alive. And the things that are most important to keeping yourself alive are emotions. See, your brain really focuses on emotional content and stores emotional responses, especially the really strong ones, as cues to how to react in various situations. And the more strongly experienced the emotional content is when you react to something, the higher priority your brain gives it when it comes time to sort through the database of potential responses to new stimuli. Look at it this way. Suppose you are Grunk the Caveman and you are out walking one day, minding your own business and quietly reciting your phone number to yourself while carrying your spear, when a giant saber-toothed llama leaps out at you. You have basically three choices. You can either tell the giant saber-toothed llama your phone number, in which case it will call you up at all hours of the night trying to sell you vehicle maintenance services. You can run away screaming into the fields because who even knows how dangerous a saber-toothed llama is? Or you can throw your spear at it and hope for the best. And the point is, no matter which one you do, if you survive the encounter, your brain isn't really going to remember it as, in the case of giant saber-toothed llama, do the thing you did that made you survive. It's going to remember, the last time I felt like wetting myself suddenly and very badly when something jumped out at me, I threw my spear at the thing doing the jumping, or I ran away from it and I survived. So let's do that same thing again, maybe we'll survive again. You definitely didn't give it your phone number though, that would be lethal. So the brain, your brain, my brain, uses powerful emotions as triggers to responses to any given situation or experience. Those emotions can, of course, be good or bad, just as the situations that provoke them can be good or bad. And your brain naturally has a tendency to gravitate towards those emotions and situations which produce the highest number of good results. Your survival, a sense of calm, feelings of security or safety, a sense of belonging, laughter, even common shared experiences between groups of friends. Your brain wants very much to feel the good feelings rather than those of fear, doubt, danger, isolation, and sadness, because those represent a threat to be dealt with, something that might terminate your existence. So it wants you to seek out the ones that make you feel best. One note before I go on, though. 
I keep using the words good and bad when describing the feelings the brain is trying to sort out. This isn't entirely accurate. No feeling is universally bad or good. Each feeling has a time and place in which it is a good and proper response and in which it is the bad or wrong response. We tend to classify feelings into good and bad categories and then make decisions based on what we perceive to be the goodness or badness of those feelings rather than on the actual situation causing the feelings. Sad is bad, we think, and therefore we should never ever feel sad because it's bad. In reality, sad is a perfectly proper and useful feeling in the right context. It's okay to feel sad at a funeral, that you lost your job, that things didn't go as you planned, or what have you. Anger often gets classified as a bad feeling. No one should ever be angry. Which is just not true. Anger is a perfectly proper emotion to feel given the proper circumstances. Anger is a motivator, a call to take corrective action, and a signal to the body to react in certain ways. We get good emotions just as messed up, too. We should always be happy, feel love, etc. But in reality, any emotion can be good or bad depending on how you use it and why. I'm no psychologist or mental health professional, so I can't give you any therapeutic advice. But most of the time, it's okay to just be okay, to feel somewhere in the middle of the emotional spectrum at a relatively neutral position. There's a lot of complex psychology behind all this, which we simply can't go into in a show of this length. But the emotions you feel aren't inherently good or bad. It is how you react to the situation that causes them and what you do with them that matters. Even so, your brain and mine are going to chase emotions that lead to what it thinks are good outcomes. That is, outcomes that produce the things the brain is most interested in, like survival, safety and security, fellowship, and so on. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll know what I'm talking about. Certainly it has been mentioned once or twice on this show before, so you may recall it. If you don't recall, then very briefly, Maslow's hierarchy of needs outlines the basic needs of the human psyche. Arranged like a pyramid, needs lowered down toward the base of the pyramid need to be fulfilled before a need higher up the pyramid can be fulfilled. As long as lower tier needs are unfulfilled, satisfying them will take precedence over fulfilling higher tier needs. It is this struggle to fulfill these essential needs that motivates the behavior of most people. The first and lowest tier of the pyramid is the physiological needs made up of food, water, warmth, and rest. Without those satisfied, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to tackle the second tier safety needs, which includes both safety and security. Together, physiological and safety needs combine to form the basic needs. The next tier up after safety is belongingness and love, which includes friends and intimate relationships. After that is esteem needs, feelings of prestige and accomplishment, 
and together they form the psychological needs. The final tier and group is self-fulfillment and self-actualization. The ability and opportunity to pursue creative endeavors and areas of interest for the pure pleasure and enjoyment of it. Without the satisfaction of the needs in the four previous tiers, you can't pursue the self-actualization needs and realize your full potential. The more basic needs you have unfulfilled, the less time, energy, and desire there is to become the best you you can be. Which is, in modern terms, the point of the whole thing. So, to review. Your brain wants certain things, and to the extent that your responses to various stimuli help it get those things, it assigns a good or bad label to those responses. Responses which are triggered by an emotional reaction to the stimuli. So those emotions also get assigned a good or bad label. Combine a good labeled emotion with a good labeled response that the brain thinks is helping it achieve its wants and meet its needs, and your brain is pleased with you and encourages you to have those same or very similar experiences again so that good things continue to happen. And it reinforces this by a variety of means, not the least of which is a good old chemical jolt right into your brain's happy spot. This is good, we feel good, here's your reward. Now don't forget how we got this way and see if you can make it happen again. Which is where we come back to nostalgia as it is used today. Those old TV shows, books, movies, music, or whatever that you recall fondly and make you feel all nostalgic resonate strongly with your brain because of pleasant emotional responses to their stimuli. Your brain remembers the feelings to which it assigned a good label and seeks to repeat those feelings. So when you remember what it was like the first time you saw Star Wars, or read The Lord of the Rings, or heard Dire Straits, or watched The A-Team, your brain gives you a little feel-good kick and encourages you to remember them fondly because, as we pointed out in our first nostalgia episode, your brain can't really tell the difference between a thing it remembers or imagines and a thing that is actually happening. It thinks the memory is just as good, just as real, as the real thing happening again. And the more fondly you remember a previous stimulus, the bigger the kick your brain gets, and the more reinforced the emotion that triggered the initial feeling becomes. If seeing an episode of MacGyver when it first aired was really amazing and fun and you really enjoyed it, then your brain is going to remember that, flag it as good, and occasionally remind you of how much you enjoyed it and how good you felt, without you actually having to experience it all over again. The details will fade, but the overall reaction and emotional response to it will not. Soon enough, MacGyver equals good. Good equals a pleasant feeling, and it doesn't matter how contrived some of the episodes had to be in order to make sure Mac could do his jiggery-pokery stuff and get out of jail free. Your brain just wants you to be happy. It wants you to feel good, because then it feels good too, thanks to those nice chemicals you generate whenever good things happen. 
which is sort of one of the points of nostalgia. Sure, there's a huge tendency to poo-poo nostalgia, and we'll come to that, but nostalgia has some essential effects that make it yet another useful tool in the brain's arsenal of thinking and feeling gadgets. And it is important to remember that nostalgia is just a feeling. And like all feelings, it can be bad or good, depending on how it is used and what you do with it. Several studies carried out over the last decade have moved nostalgia from its previous status as a disease to one as a helpful coping tool when faced with difficulty. When you're down, a quick case of nostalgia can help improve your mood by helping you reflect on more pleasant times when you were happier. In people who were feeling lonely, nostalgia helped them reconnect with loved ones not immediately present by reminding them of time spent enjoying each other's company or participating in activities together. Nostalgia can make you feel better about yourself and your accomplishments by reminding you of times when you were successful or well thought of. It can enhance your sense of meaning in life by allowing you to reflect on positive experiences where you made a difference or had an impact. It can even help you grow psychologically by reminding you of a time when you weren't successful or faced some difficulty, but were able to overcome it and survive nonetheless. And by allowing you to reflect on previous decisions and see the outcomes which you can then apply to your present circumstances. Present events, good or bad, were often shown to trigger nostalgic effects in the test subjects, and those who did experience nostalgia were reported to have better outcomes and generally feel better about themselves, regardless of the good or bad nostalgic feeling they experienced, and regardless of the eventual outcome of the current situation, than those subjects who did not. But nostalgia has a darker side too. Of course it does. It's all about feelings and brains and chemicals, and anytime those are involved, you have to know that one of the problems can be addiction. I'm sure you know, because you're the sort of smart person who listens to this show, that your feelings can become addictive. You probably know at least one person who always has to be happy regardless of the circumstances, or always seems to be angry even when there is no obvious cause for anger, or frequently derives pleasure from feeling superior to others, or goes out of their way to make other people feel bad. Because a certain emotional strategy has worked for them in the past, they seek out ways to perpetuate the good emotions and responses their brain has latched onto as successful. So it is with nostalgia. Any activity, any emotion that stimulates the reward centers of the brain can become addictive. See, the problem is, the more hooked on nostalgia you become, the less and less you live in the present day, and the more time you spend thinking about the past, about what things used to be like. And sure, nostalgia has some useful coping mechanisms that can help you deal with the here and now by reflecting on the past, but that's not what's going on here. According to researchers at the University of Southampton, who conducted the earlier study, the average person experiences nostalgia about three times a week a week, not 15, 20, 25, 30 times a day. Not every time you turn on your computer or look at your phone. 
Not every five minutes when you're talking to your buddies around the table and quoting lines from a movie you all saw years ago. Three times a week is the average. And it turns out, nostalgia is awfully easy to trigger. With constant nostalgia, you're very much in danger of living too much in the past, of being unable to cope with what is happening right here, right now, in your life, as it actually exists. Of being stuck in your own head, trying to work out why today doesn't match up with your idealized version of the past, wondering how things got so out of hand, why things were so much better back then, and how they've become so terrible now. Unable to think critically about it, and see that really, for the most part, they haven't, and they weren't. It's just that we remember it wrong. Of course, back in my day, that wouldn't have been allowed. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We're off and running on Series 3 with this episode. And there's some real doozies coming. If you'd like to help support the show, and it could certainly use all the support it can get, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and grab one of our handy-dandy memberships. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep things running around here and also get some neat thank you gifts like transcripts and early episode releases. If you do, we'll always remember you fondly. That's at buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback. This has been a Fiddleback production and was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, which you can find at sessions.blue. Nostalgia. It ain't what it used to be.